I basically think we should start a drinking game where we take a shot every time Martha's name comes up. Hello and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us and we have an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala, and today we're talking with Dan Hon, Principal of Very Little Gravitas. Welcome, Dan. Hey, everyone. So your company name is Very Little Gravitas. That seems really unassuming. Where did that name come from? What's the story behind that? It is a very bad science fiction in-joke, which is that I'm a big fan of Ian e M. Banks' culture novels, and for people who've read them, There are stupendously powerful artificial intelligent spaceships in them that are run by minds, and they give their spaceships what are probably regarded as whimsical names, given that they can probably take out an entire star system. There's an in-joke in that one of these other alien cultures says, it's a bit weird that you give these spaceships such whimsical names. So over the course of a number of books, we're introduced to a bunch of spaceships that talk about or make reference to the appropriate amount of gravitas that a ship name should have, given that it could wipe out billions of people in an eye blink. I like bad jokes, and I thought it would be funny if I made a joke about the lack of gravitas that I bring to the work that I am doing in government. Well, I think as long as you're not wiping out hundreds of thousands of people, you're probably good. Yeah, that's the general idea. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I had to think about how I behave professionally. And it's a big deal, I think, that I try to kind of also be irreverent as well as professional and candid and blunt. I kind of wanted something that would get across that I'm pretty serious about my work, which I'd like to take an approachable and kind of friendly attitude to it. No one, I would say, practically no one has actually gotten the joke who I work with in government so far. They just think it's a really interesting and amusing name that is not like, for example, Deloitte or Grant Thornton or any kind of utilitarian contracting or consulting company name. God forbid. <laughs> that leaves us quite nicely onto our next question. So something that really struck us was what an eclectic career you've had. Could you tell us a bit about how you ended up working in digital? This feels like a really, really long and involved question. And I think it's also one that I only started figuring out in the last years. The quickest version is that, like a whole bunch of really lucky people, I grew up in a pretty kind of stereotypical middle-class household. I was born in the late 70s, so the home computer revolution happened at the same time in the UK. And both my parents were academics. My dad is a professor of manufacturing engineering. So I would remember all the different computers that he would bring home. I remember that I was as much into the humanities and writing and history and stuff at primary and secondary school. What ended up happening was that when I went to college, I went on to study law and a whole bunch of my friends at college made fun of me in a nice way. <laughs> because I appeared to be spending more time with the computer scientists than I did with my fellow lawyers. And some of the subjects that I did better at were the ones that were, can you put together a good essay rather than have I spent the right amount of time in the library and memorizing case names and citations and that kind of stuff in precedent. So it started to all come to a head in about 2001 during my finals when I was supposed to be revising for my finals and there was a big massively multiplayer online alternate reality game. I'd already started blogging a couple years earlier 
So that would have been around 1999, when you could probably list the people who were blogging in the UK, probably about five to 10 people. And I made a whole bunch of friends. I was spending a lot of time online. This probably resonates with a lot of people. But in the late 90s, when I found out which university I'd gotten into, I was very, very excited that in the halls of residence, I would be getting a 10 megabit internet connection and was very excited about having that ethernet port. What ended up happening was that I got into this really fantastic, massively multiplayer online game, spent a lot of time in online community, did my time qualifying as a lawyer. And if I'd gone down that path, I would have been an intellectual property or IT lawyer, trying to keep at least some part of my professional life involved in tech. And then what ended up happening was I joined a startup with my brother called Mind Candy that was developing, again, a big alternate reality game. The CEO and founder was this chap, Michael Smith, who had also founded Firebox. Did my time with that first startup. My brother and I left and then founded another startup. And really into how you can use technology to build and make really great human experiences. The startup that I co-founded with my brother ended up getting a lot of attention. We won a bunch of awards at South by Southwest. And back then, when that kind of thing happens, then ad agencies start knocking at your door. And this was the late, early aughts. And by that time, I'd been in startups for a while, and then I jumped ship. There was a very compelling offer from the ad agency world to kind of help them figure out what to do with all this internet and digital business. And that is also around the time that I started working more closely with people who would go on to be part of the initial team for GDS and GovUK. Side note there, Dan, what was it like working so closely with your brother? Really difficult. We have a much better relationship now. (laughs) Sometimes it was easy and uh, other times it was hard. I mean, if I've got a piece of general advice, it would be to, if you can, try not to start a new business in the middle of a recession and also have a really nice mature relationship with the people that you're going to be co-founding something with, whether or not they are family. The good news is that we get on really well right now. (laughs) That's awesome. Stellar advice for anyone looking to jump into the private sector there. That's great. So you mentioned there that you went to work in advertising. We saw from our research that you've worked for some really high profile brands like Coca-Cola and Nike and Facebook. What was it like making that shift from working in startups to working in advertising? At first, and I would say pretty much the entire time, it felt like a really great opportunity and like a toy box. What I felt was really interesting was the chance to work with such big brands and to help define what digital could mean for them. And I still have got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about this. Agencies at the time trying to figure out the internet is happening. We don't know what to do with it. Should we just be making the ads that we've always been making and figuring out a way to do that on the internet or what is native to the web or what's native to the internet that is interesting that you can only do there. The agency that I ended up working for, Wyden and Kennedy, and this is part of where all of the spider web parts start coming back together. So Russell Davis was the head of planning for Wyden's office out in Portland. And that's also where I met Ben Terrett when he was working in Wyden, London. The kind of the pitch of that agency was that they solved clients' business problems by creating provocative relationships between brands and their customers. I thought there was such a great opportunity in the solving business problems part in terms of how you do that with the opportunities afforded by 
going digital and the internet and all of that kind of stuff. I'd say they also saw themselves as a communications company. So the fact that they are focused on the outcome, it's not just about making an effective ad or a Super Bowl ad for them. It's also about, well, does this actually move the bottom line? Can you trace it back to solving a business problem? A concrete example was having the opportunity to work with a brand like Nike, who had only pretty recently come out with the original Nike Plus stuff. So this was the sensor that you would stick in a shoe, and it initially would only work with the Apple iPod. And they had built this embryonic digital ecosystem about measuring how people run and helping them become better athletes. There was something that was really compelling to me about, A, the creativity that the internet affords you. It got to scratch my storytelling and forming human connections and how technology can be a fantastic force multiplier for that, as well as here are some really interesting questions or problems and how do we go about solving them. There was an opportunity to work with an agency, stupendously large brands that were clearly okay with spending a whole bunch of money. What sort of amazing things could we do with that? And I had equal amounts of fun and anxiety and angst trying to figure out the answers to those questions. You mentioned how you worked with Russell Davies there, who famously went and worked for GDS later. Was there anything that you learned during your time in advertising that you feel can or has been ported back into government? One of the things, and it started to become clear the more time that I spent at Wyden and the more that I saw how that founding GDS team or that initial GDS team could approach their problems. There's one story that I like during my time at Wyden, learning about what Wyden did with the Procter & Gamble account for the Olympics. The story kind of goes a bit like this, which is that P&G are a Wyden client one day they had found that they had kind of accidentally sponsored the entire Olympics. And it was P&G that had done this, the parent brand and not an individual brand like Tide, who if you're not American, they're the people who make the pods that people eat. And they're trying to work out, okay, well, we've done this massive thing where we've sponsored the Olympics. And how can we possibly tie this back to a human and relatable message? The equivalent of what they call planning in the ad world is the user research stuff. You're kind of doing it backwards and you're trying to say, well, now that we've sponsored the Olympics, what possible connection can we make that is going to deliver the best bang for the buck and and is going to make sense? And what the planners came up with, or rather the insight that they uncovered, was the fact that every Olympian has a mother. And the campaign that came out of that was Thank You Mom around everything that mothers do. And there are clearly a lot of issues with this tack and this point of view. But everything that mothers do and everything that parents do when they've got an Olympian and then following that line all the way through to, you know, you get your amazing tear jerking shots of moms at the Olympics for the first time, seeing what their children have done and and how much time and energy that they put into it and how that pays off. For me, that was one of the big fundamental insights about really understanding people. And that was also one of the compelling things about Wyden and still is about the amount of time and effort that they try to put into understanding people to their point to produce compelling communications to solve business problems. But then I still think that you can see a through line from how people like Russell approach that at Wyden to draw a through line from that all the way through to what is the user need and understanding and meeting user needs. That's such a great story. And it's really interesting to hear those dots connected from the time at Widen all the way through GDS, because you really, really see that whenever you'd go to demos about really understanding what the user's problem was so that you would be able to fix what that is as opposed to what you thought it might be. 
One of the things we talk a lot about on the show is the private sector and how government often holds the private sector to a really high esteem. That's not always necessarily the case. There's a lot of good work done in government, just like there is in the private sector. Were there any anti-patterns that you spotted in your time in advertising? And what should we not be doing? I feel like I had exactly the same problems in terms of siloization in the private sectors. The time that I spent at Wyden, especially in the US, was 2011 through 2014. And for context, this was around the time that agencies, especially the traditional kind of big TV ad type agencies, were still really grappling with what does digital mean? P&G kind of figured this out where they have the ability to buy the online or the digital native startups that are challenging their brands. But everyone from the CMO and around was trying to figure out what does digital mean for the business? What does it mean for an agency? What does it mean for a chief marketing officer? And some of the stuff that came through from a practical point of view for me was the presupposition that you had to use advertising and communications to solve a business problem. I'm fairly comfortable with this particular story, which was we had gotten a brief on Nike which was not enough women are using Nike Plus. It would be great if we could get more women to use Nike Plus. Um, why don't we come up with an ad campaign? Or what, what type of campaign can we come up with? What type of creative can we come up with that would lead to more women using Nike Plus? And I took a look at the research that the planners had come back with. And it was helpful that one of the reasons why I'd been brought into Widen was my background in online games. And one of the quick opportunities that I thought I saw there was that the way that Nike Plus was architected, and this has as much to do with Nike's culture, which is very kind of performance based. And the strategists and the planners backed me up on this. And they said, there are people who just want to stay fit. They don't want to win a marathon. They're not in it for performance. And it's more kind of lifestyle stuff. But the way that Nike Plus is architected at the moment is that it is more, I want to beat my personal best for a 5k or for a marathon or something like that. And I didn't see different needs reflected in the product. And my point of view was it would be very frustrating for me to try to address a potential change in a product or a potential, not even a shortcoming, but something that is missing in a product that could meet other users' needs just through comms. And in fact, I remember thinking, I don't think we can solve this problem using comms or it would be a waste of time and money to attempt to try to. So what we went back with was your actual problem here isn't the comms, it's the product. What if we came up with a different kind of product that used that same running data, but satisfied different needs or provided a different kind of feedback loop? And at the time, this was around the time that we had all the Farmville stuff going on. Social gaming was turning into a massive thing. Casual gaming was turning into a massive thing with the Nintendo Wii. And people had realized that gaming is more of a medium than a genre. And we came back with a point of view that said, what if we use something like the medium of a game, especially an online and social game, to give you a reason or to use the data that is generated by a product like Nike Plus? And that ended up being folded into when Nike launched their quantified self, their wearable, which was the Nike Fuel Band. That was kind of the beginning of working at an ad agency, especially an ad agency that people come to because of its fantastic Super Bowl ads. And all the way through, even all the way up to the CMO of a client, for example, having the way of solving the problem predefined and not having it open to be, what if it's a change to existing product or service? Or what if it's a brand new product or service that might solve this business problem? That kind of siloization in terms of not having the freedom to go, well, here's the outcome that we want. 
what's the best way of reaching that outcome versus in some cases, a CMO having to say something like, this would be a really great way of solving my business problem. But as CMO, for example, that CMO isn't empowered to bring back a product or service solution to that business problem because someone else owns it somewhere or that there's some sort of turf war. I think working in digital in that way right now, unless you are, are working at or for a, a digital native organization, my cynical self would say that you can't escape those siloing problems. The promise that digital and the internet have to fundamentally change or widen your toolkit that you have to solve those types of business problems. What inspired you to make the transition into Code for America and into that more government-focused space? I had finished at that point about five years in advertising. And to be very honest and transparent, I was looking increasingly enviously over the Atlantic and seeing increasing number of my friends every single year were getting up to at GDS. And I think combined with my background of really believing in the potential of technology to solve fundamental problems and to do things better and to borrow the language that would come later to meet people's needs. It's kind of very mission-driven. Before GDS was started, I spent a whole bunch of time trying to work with the BBC in terms of getting the BBC's Raytheon Educate, Inform and Entertain and being very excited that the BBC, in theory, was supposed to be medium agnostic. They're a really great story of starting out as radio and then embracing TV. I still have this hope that they will embrace online in a kind of a native way. One of the simple reasons was I saw what my friends were doing and I wanted to see if I could be involved in that or work in the same area. So I started thinking about the US digital service. I had to think about 18F. I was lucky in that I had a couple of friends who were already at Code for America. Francis Berriman, I think I had met vaguely, but I'd also met Mike Magursky, who was Code for America's CTO at the time. They both happened to be reading my newsletter, so they knew that I was looking for work. And at the time, Code for America was also looking for an editorial and content director. So I was introduced to Jen Palka, Code for America's exec director, and we hit it off and we started thinking about how I could work with and in Code for America and what might be a good fit. Wow, you've really name dropped some proper digital government heroes there. We're super jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us about a project or a piece of work that you did with them that was particularly interesting? So when I started at Code for America, they knew that they needed to do something in the content space. And I think everyone would agree that we had some difficulty figuring that out. So I worked closely with Jen. And my point of view was, I can't really come up with a content strategy unless or until Code for America's strategy is clear. So we did a lot of work on figuring out what was happening with each of the Code for America fellowships. So they have this fellowship model where a bunch of people would come together as a fellowship team, and then they would get deployed out to a local municipal kind of city level government to bring the good news of digital transformation and digital government and how things could and should be better. One of the things that we hit on was that the content and editorial strategy was more about spreading what Code for America and its partners had learned in a way that would be easy to understand and easy to copy by other cities and other governments. So we spent a bit of time on that. And I have to admit that that felt more like a secondary problem. It wasn't as direct on here's a problem in government and let's work on figuring out how we solve it. The content and editorial strategy for Code for America at the time was, here's what we have learned. 
How can we make it as clear and understandable and replicable as possible? So that kind of stuff was the beginning of the understanding of things like principles and service manuals. And how do we make it easy to understand good processes so that those processes can be followed in other places? Personally, I found that start to become difficult work because it wasn't quite scratching an itch of getting more fully involved. Mike Migurski and some other people who I became good friends with kind of noticed that. And what had happened was fantastic work that one of the fellowship teams had done on the food stamp program had attracted the attention of the Department for Social Services in the state of California. They'd seen and admired this work and they could see the potential of it. So they were at the time just trying to figure out how could they have a more formal relationship with Code for America. They decided to test that through two pieces of work, one of which was engaging that fellowship team more directly on the food stamp application process. DSS happened to be in the middle of going through a procurement for a brand new child welfare IT system. And they asked if Code for America would be able to provide a review of that request for proposal. And Mike and some other members of the team put forward the idea that I might have a good perspective on that. I might be a good person to review the RFP. And through my professional background, we could also tick a number of boxes. I could say that I had trained as a lawyer, so I should be pretty good at reading contracts. I had a formal background in software engineering, so I could at least look at the RFP and put together recommendations. What I saw there after some conversations with the rest of the CFA team was that CFA, Code for America, didn't really have a horse in the race. We weren't a consultancy firm that wanted to or even had a model for getting more RFP reviewing business. Part of the philosophy was we could just say what we felt needed to be said without feeling like we were at the risk of losing anything. So we could just be as candid or as blunt as we wanted to be in terms of assessing how successful the RFP or the acquisition vehicle and process would be in meeting the needs of social workers, caseworkers, and replacing a 25 to 30 odd year old legacy system. So I took lead on producing the review of that RFP. I wrote three white papers, one of which was an overview of here's how successful digital procurements look like in the private sector and in the public sector. Here's a more in-depth one that goes at the section level, takes a look at this RFP and has a point of view on how successful it might be. And the third one that flowed on from that was given papers one and two, what are the issues facing the state of California as a whole against successful execution of delivering a new child welfare IT system that meets the needs of its users and will deliver improved outcomes for the children in the state's care? And I had a lot of fun with that. One of the things that I directly drew inspiration from was the way that Martha Lane Fox set out the rationale for putting something together like the government digital service in the UK. You mentioned the food welfare program, especially in California with Silicon Valley in the area. How was it working in the tech space with such vulnerable groups when you've got such privilege right next door? Part of the argument that we used And the framing that I use when I talk about that particular project was California is the richest state in the United States. And the United States is by most or all measures, the richest country in the entire world. And some fantastic social progress had been made in society in general, agreeing that people shouldn't have to go hungry. And one of the fantastic things that the Food Stamp Fellowship did was they did a teardown of the application process for the Food Stamp Program. 
you can't help but look when they take you through the teardown of the process as it existed in San Francisco and say there is the massive disconnect here between a society that has voted and agreed at the federal level that people shouldn't go hungry. If we've agreed that and then we look at the process through which people would apply for and then, fingers crossed, actually get that benefit, find out if they qualify for that benefit, it is almost as if we didn't actually agree that we want these people to not starve. Silicon Valley and the West Coast get a bad rap. I actually hear this a lot from my friends because I'm not based in the Bay Area. A number of my friends come back to me and say, you can't say that the Bay Area is just full of evil techies who want to get rid of everyone's jobs. There'll be self-driving cars everywhere and all of our neighborhood bodegas will be replaced by vending machines. There are people who are trying to fight the good fight and they're just trying to do the best that they can. The food stamp example is a great one of the state government starting to see that there were people with a technological background who agree with not even liberal, but these humanist principles and say, but we deserve better than this and we can do better than this. And one of the examples is if Uber can understand that it needs to be as easy as possible to onboard new drivers or what these registration flows are like, for example, then this disparity between consumer technology and the technology that is required to implement government policy and programs, this disparity is so great, we shouldn't be happy with that, and that there are people who aren't happy with that and want to do something about it. One of the things that you have talked about just then with Uber is about this empathy gap that we have in the technological space and about how we can build more humane technologies. Could you tell our listeners a bit about that? There are some examples that I really like. And one of the examples that I used to use for this empathy gap concept was I had bought a Withings Smart Scale when I'd first been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And I kind of went all in on the whole quantified self thing. I used it for a while and it just became part of our household. Something interesting happened after the birth of our first child when we had been using it on and off to weigh him. He'd gone onto the scales and this was, you know, he was younger than one year old, especially around that time when it's very easy to put a baby on a scale and have them not immediately move away from it. And what ended up happening was we got an email from Withings one day that said that Calvin, our son, shouldn't despair because he had been gaining weight and that he could work with Withings and they could set a goal and he could lose weight. That, to me, is one of the best examples of digital product and services not understanding the context in which their products will or may be used. And the sheer absurdity of fully set up user account where the weight started effectively from zero, where they have the birth date of the user and then sending out something that is either a marketing email or a retention email or our service does X, Y, Z. Here's how you could use it. The presumption that someone who only weighed a handful of pounds might be interested in losing weight was just so bizarre and so weird. It didn't feel like it should be an edge case. And that, to me, is one of the examples that I keep coming back to. We talk in the tech world about scratching our own itches and building stuff for ourselves. And we just can't do that anymore. You could tell a story in the 80s when a lot of us of a certain age started growing up with this. Technology was something that just by dint of cost and accessibility was only available to other people like people who already had technology. And it's this industry-wide lack of recognition that 
in a sense, we, the generic stereotypical technologists, won because Moore's Law had its effect, ubiquitous wireless networks had its effect, and most people have access to this kind of technology now. So it's untenable. And the examples in which we see technology that has been designed for the people who look like or are the people who use the technology become increasingly difficult to explain away. Some of the examples are things like, hey, you know, we're going to launch a health tracking app or Apple launched the health app in iOS. And it just doesn't happen to have hardly anything that might be applicable to women and roughly 50% of the world's population. So to me, it felt like it was becoming increasingly clear that there are just things that are happening in consumer technology, business and public sector The stuff that we make is just for humans, and we have to be very careful. And everything that I had read and experienced about the benefit of user research and the benefit of contact hours, one of the examples that always gets thrown around is the cutout in the piece of paper stuck to the window at the GDS office, where there's a label that says users and an arrow pointing to the hole in the piece of paper. Your users are the people outside. It's everyone, which you can look at as an unhelpful point of view. Because a lot of time we say, well, you can't say everyone, you have to be more specific about this. But there is, I think, something incredibly important and underlying to the fact that at this point, we do build technology for everyone. And it would be really weird to think about these types of technologies and only serve either inadvertently or on purpose specific segments of them. So that's what I mean in terms of that empathy gap and that lack of understanding This type of technology has won in the sense that many people can afford it now and can make use of it. And acting like that isn't true, even if you're not doing that on purpose, is a really, really bad look and is, frankly, preventable at this point in time. Absolutely. You've filled out some great examples there. The Apple Health one is one that's been really commonly spoken about across our industry. That makes the point really well. I also saw another example recently, which went back to one you mentioned earlier, which was around a health tracking app. And uh, women online had mentioned that they don't account for the fact that when you're pregnant, you're obviously gaining weight. And she was getting all of these notifications saying, warning, your weight is going up. You really need to take more care of yourself and do more exercise because this is not healthy. When you look at a team of people who don't represent the users of the thing that they're building it for, it doesn't take much to understand why that might happen. Exactly. And the health tracking and pregnancy example, we had that with the birth of our second son. My wife had been using the smart scales. And sure as not, after the birth of our second son, she got an email saying, congratulations, you've lost a bunch of weight. <laughs> We're like, yeah, because she had a baby. <laughs> um, you don't even know whether that was a good loss of weight or not. Even before I started working on the Facebook account at Wyden, there were a lot of jokes when it came out that Mark Zuckerberg was getting married and that he was going to be starting a family. And a lot of commentary from the peanut gallery saying, well, maybe he might start caring about these other things that we've been talking about for a long time. Maybe that means that he might care about some of this other stuff. That is the thing that doesn't have anything to do with technology and has more to do with what do we care about and do we understand the implications of what we're building and who we're building it for. We can't behave like it's the 80s and only a small subset of relatively well-off middle-class people with a bunch of disposable income are going to be using this, or even then that they're going to be using it for specific purposes. You mentioned there that you have sons. One of the blog posts that you wrote was about the demands of masculinity and how you're trying to teach them about accepting all their emotions and that being perfectly normal within that sphere of masculinity. 
Do you think there are any bits of that blog post or that sentiment that we can take out and apply within our industry? It's funny because sometimes when I joke about it and I say that in the broad sphere of the digital transformation work that I'm doing in California, as much of it feels like relationship counseling as it feels like addressing there's the how do we make child welfare better through developing digital services that will improve outcomes. And then there's the day to day of there are about 200 odd people in this building. And when it comes down to it, a lot of our effectiveness in terms of what we're able to deliver as a team is interpersonal relationships. There is so much that I've talked about with my therapist and my family and practically everyone else in between about how can we learn to be candid? How can we learn to give useful feedback? How can we learn if you're the kind of person who avoids conflict? I would think that a lot of people would prefer to minimize conflict, but also that kind of safety. One example that came up recently was a project that I'm working on had some outside consultants to come in to do both an assessment and also lay the groundwork for some coaching on what a user-centered, agile approach means for a group or an organization of this size. If I can just take this one data point as an example of anecdata, there was a session that we had with the exec leadership team. And we said, fundamentally, a lot of the success of this project is going to come down to whether the members of the leadership and the executive feel safe in being candid with each other. And this had nothing to do with how stable are our dev environments? Are we providing the right kind of support to our product managers and to our service managers? How are our vendors doing? And are we giving them the right kind of feedback? At the very last session, a lot of it came back to do our leadership feel safe in being candid with each other and that they're going to be able to work on these problems together. Because if they can't do that, and fundamentally, if our leadership and our managers don't feel safe talking to each other that way, then there's only so much that we can achieve and there's only so much kind of improvement that we can deliver. Because at the end of the day, it's still just people working together, trying to get something done. That's why that famous GDS phrase stuck so keenly. It was the trust users delivery. We do have to work in that order most of the time, because when we don't have that foundation of trust, then it really doesn't go anywhere. We saw that you enjoy training AIs to do different things. And I loved the phrase you just used just then, which was anecdata. Do you maybe have a little bit of anecdotal anecdata about AI that you could share? I'd been reading about all the stuff that people have been doing with recursive neural networks, specifically these LSTMs. So long, short-term memory, recursive neural networks. And for my sins, I'm not able to stop reading the posts on Hacker News. And someone had written a blog post about the unreasonable effectiveness of a character-based recursive neural network in essentially, if I understood it right, learning English or a language from first principles and then creating, for example, more Shakespeare-type sounding stuff. The type of work that was involved was on the level of make sure that you can get all of these libraries running. Here's some code that you can clone from GitHub. You squirt in your data set in one end and then you play around with it in the sense that a lot of developers would empathize with. I'm going to keep tweaking things or hitting it until it does what I want it to do. One of the first ideas that I had was generating British village or town names. What I felt was successful about that was not just going for the ones that the neural network generated, but also going through that. My friend Matt Jones calls this centaur work because it's hybrid. It's half AI and half human led. Use the neural network as a way to be dorky. 
explore the possibility space. It does the thing that it's really good at and generates a whole bunch of options and then I can help winnow them down. So I got to have a lot of schoolboy humor and a lot of sniggering about potential British sounding names. That did well enough if you're talking about counting the kind of attention that you get. The Daily Mail did a thoroughly unresearched article about it and called me a computer programmer from Oregon, which was partially correct. One that I have right now that I haven't cleaned up yet is I got a sufficiently large corpus of congressional bill titles. That would be the equivalent of a legislation that has passed. And I use that as a training corpus to generate amusing U.S. congressional bill titles. And I've got a whole bunch of them that I haven't gone through. That was fun. (laughs) How many of them featured the word freedom? A lot of them featured freedom. And I did intentionally select a whole bunch of ones where the freedom word is interestingly or amusingly juxtaposed with other things that would be completely inappropriate to juxtapose freedom with. Okay, I'm willing to join your campaign, Dan Hon 2020. And actually, I've just looked up, I've got some examples here. <laughs> so one example would be the Wolf Victim Crimes Enforcement Act of 2015, the Volunteer Firefighter Access to Contraceptive Resources and Development. So what I asked the neural network to do I get to supply it with a temperature, which is how conservative do I want the neural network to be and also how much output I want. The method that I went through was asking it for about 100,000 characters worth. And my wife got really annoyed at me at this because I had been spending time doing this while on holiday. And she would look over at me and she'd say, are you looking at automatically generated congressional bill titles and picking out the funny ones again at two in the morning? And I had to say yes. I found it quite relaxing and also mind-expanding. I also like the Federal Bear Cooperative Reviewing Act of 2017. There are a lot of these. Sounds to me like a perfect way to spend a holiday, so why not? Go for it. I reckon you should get a Twitter bot up and running and just ping them out every now and again. Yeah, that's definitely on my list. (laughs) Talking about fun stuff, I saw that you made some pretty bold predictions for the 10 design trends that will shape 2018. Which of those have come true and which of those have been absolute flops? It was the beginning of the year and there were a whole bunch of, here are the next year's design trends on places like Fast Company and so on. Living in America in 2018 and feeling like you're legitimately worried about what may transpire with the federal government at the time and still now, I thought it would be amusing to put what felt like frivolous design trends against the reality of worldwide or localized apocalypse. I have to admit, the number one was that augmented reality would be a big hit in 2018 as nuclear war survivors look for any useful techniques to find water, food and medicine while on the move. I don't know if anyone else has seen this, but with the hurricane that just hit the east coast of the U.S., The Weather Channel got a whole bunch of attention here on a virtual studio setup that they did that visualized what the effect of all of the rain and water would be. I'd say it feels like that use of augmented reality in terms of understanding exactly how terrible the situation is going to be and helping people understand what an increased water level is going to look like feels, yeah, that's a thing that happens now. Scarily so. That's the problem with satire. Sometimes it does come true, hey? Final and most important question of this interview, how much was working in advertising like the TV show Mad Men? Mad Men came up a lot in the same way that it would be hard for 
in the same way that having the thick of it not come up would be really weird if you worked in UK government at the time. Mad Men felt pretty true. One thing that I do remember, and this is more about the backdrop and the culture of Mad Men, I remember having a discussion where we were doing a script review for an ad for a campaign that had been pitched. I asked the question, I said, we're assuming that the lead character here is a man and there is no reason why they need to be a man. So why can't we just have the lead here who happened to be a photographer for something like the National Geographic? The casting here just says that it's a dude and there's no reason why it should be a dude. And there was a bit of an awkward silence. In retrospect, I didn't push that harder The experience that I had with advertising was that it is as much and still a male-dominated industry. I felt really weird feeling like I had accidentally lucked into the role that I was in in the kind of agency that I was in. There's definitely a feeling of there being severe underrepresentation in both gender and minorities. Fair amount of drinking, (laughs) a fair amount of office drama. The agency that I happened to be working at or had a lot of potential for those Kodak moments that happened early on, there was definitely a lot of that. Sounds a little bit like straight white man world. I could definitely get on board with the drinking aspect. Close by asking you to recommend a couple of things for our listeners, starting off with a Twitter account. So this is really awkward because I don't use Twitter anymore. You're Dan Hon not typing. Yes, I'm Dan Hon isn't here anymore. So I'm on Mastodon now instead. And I made the decision a few weeks ago to just stop using Twitter. One Twitter account that I do like is Jen Schiffer's account. She's done amazing work in the space of art and code. And she is at Jen Schiffer. And she is incredibly funny. I'm incredibly jealous of her because she's stupendously smart and creative and wish that I could be anywhere near as smart and creative and have such output as she does. She recently opened and emceed the Art and Code track at the XOXO Festival in Portland a couple of weeks ago and did a fantastic job. I've already said to you, I'm so jealous you got to go to XOXO. One of my colleagues was there and it just looked absolutely awesome. We'll enjoy following that account in your absence on Twitter. Apart from this one, of course, can you recommend us a podcast? The podcast that I'd recommend, and also this is a bit awkward because I historically have found it really, really difficult to listen to podcasts. I got diagnosed with adult ADHD a few years ago, which felt fantastic because it explained a lot of things. And whenever I try to listen to a podcast, I invariably find that within about 10 minutes, my attention has wandered. And I have no idea what they're talking about. And I haven't actually been listening to it. But I feel very comfortable in recommending a podcast called The Cultures, which is run by my brother, Adrian Hon, and his two close friends, Andrea Phillips and Naomi Alderman. The three of them all worked together at our first startup, Mind Candy. Adrian was the chief game designer and Andrea and Naomi are writers. And I love being in conversation when I'm with them in person. So the fact that they have a podcast, which means that they can edit and be even more smart and scintillating than when they are in person, from my point of view, would be a really good recommendation to what they talk about. Brilliant. You just mentioned Mind Candy there and something came back to me. When I used to work for Penguin Books, I was in the children's department with Eric Huang, who I think then went on to be director of development at Mind Candy. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And also, if you were at Penguin Books at that time, then when Adrian and I went off to Six to Start, then we worked with Jeremy Ettinghausen on the We Tell Stories project for Penguin. 
course, yeah. That's how I got my start in digital. There we go. <laughs> what a coincidence. All right, a couple more. So recommend us a book. My book recommendation is called Surfing Uncertainty, and its subtitle is Prediction, Action, and the Embodied Mind. I should warn that this is practically a textbook. It's by someone called Andy Clark, and it is an encapsulation of one of the leading theories of cognition and cognitive neuroscience and how our brains work. It has been thoroughly mind-blowing to me. I think it's actually still pretty accessible, but it does a really, really good job of outlining and explaining the leading theories about how our brains work from the bottom up and how our brains work from a prediction point of view talks about what happens between our sensory data coming in at the bottom level and how we make sense of the world through a series of Bayesian predictions that go top down as well. It's really interesting if you've ever done any kind of reading or understanding about how vision works isn't the light just comes in, goes through our eye, hits our eyeball, and then we see things in the world and how a lot of processing, a lot of assumptions go in there that explain all these things about how optical illusions work. If you've ever done any reading or thinking about how white balance works, the fact that we know what color snow is supposed to be and that we kind of fixate around, well, we know that snow is white, so what color should other things be? It's fantastically interesting from that point of view. And I try to take it in little small chunks whenever I'm on the plane. Sounds like one you might have to carve out a little bit of headspace for. Fascinating. And finally, a charity or social enterprise you could recommend we donate to. The easy one is Code for America, which is a 501c3 in the US and has been doing amazing work. And I feel comfortable saying that despite and also continuing to work with them. The other one is called NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness in North America. One of the things that they do is they operate essentially what would be a bit like a private members club. And you can only go to these clubs if you have a previous diagnosis of a serious mental illness. And what they're intended to be are safe spaces for you to be able to connect with and spend time with other people who have had similar kinds of experiences. After I spent an amount of time in intensive outpatient treatment, one of the things that was recommended to me was it's really difficult to talk about this stuff. It's really difficult to find other people to talk about it with. It was the first experience that I'd ever had in terms of group therapy. And it was frankly terrifying when I started it. I couldn't think of anything else that I didn't want to do. But amusingly, I found out the first day of my group therapy that the thing that I didn't want to do even more than group therapy was group art therapy. <laughs> I had to draw about my feelings. I feel incredibly strongly about NAMI and what they're trying to do. In the US, they've got this network of all these resources everywhere. And it's really, really important to me that people understand about the impact of mental health and mental illness, that it affects so many people. And you just don't know what it looks like. You, you can be having a conversation with someone who you can incredibly admire. They, for all intents and purposes, appear to be a stupendously high-functioning individual. And you could just not know about some of the struggles and some of the issues that they're dealing with. NAMI is something that's really, really important to me. And they are at NAMI.org. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Dan. It would have been so easy for you just to name drop Code for America and not share that organization and share that story with us. So thank you very much for doing that. And we'll definitely be checking those out. 
And also, thanks so much for chatting with us. This interview has been really, really interesting. And it's always great to speak to someone with such a wide range of career paths and a really eclectic journey. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much. And please stay and help in government because the mission is still ongoing. Yeah, we need you. So, Kylie, what did you think about that? Where to start? Dan has had such a varied career through all these different industries. All of it was really, really fascinating and we couldn't help dig into it. Some of the things I thought were quite unexpected was all the stuff around the ad agency and working in private sector and actually how his experience going through university and meaning to train as a lawyer, but ending up being really interested in computer science and hanging around with loads of geeks ending up in big ad agencies, really at the beginning of the data revolution in terms of advertising and products. I thought that was fascinating. What about you? Yeah, full disclosure, researching Dan was some of the most involved research we've done since the beginning of the podcast, mainly because he is so honest and open and prolific online. What I loved about this interview is that we really managed to touch on most of the areas that he's written on his journey from being a computer science geek all the way to what he does now. I was mainly just really, really happy when he explained what his company name was and then explained that absolutely no one else got the joke because I totally didn't get it at all. What do you think about his time in advertising and the stories he told there? He really couldn't have picked a couple of examples that were more suited to things that I really love. We talked about working at Nike and then also working with Procter & Gamble around sponsoring the Olympics. So two of my absolute favorite things. And it was really interesting. I remember getting those Nike Fitbits that go in your trainer and they were attached to the, one of the original iPods. And I had both of those things when I was about 17 or 18. And I remember it taking me weeks and weeks of a Saturday job to save up the money to get this Nike Fitbit. It was so revolutionary at the time. And it was so interesting to hear the behind the scenes how that company in the early days really failed to understand that their products weren't always going to be used in the way that they were designed to. He was talking about Nike and their real focus on performance and beat your previous 10k time, whereas actually quite a lot of their user base, especially women, often do running and sports just to stay active and healthy. And it's not to them about beating their previous times or any of these goal-oriented things. It's hilarious that we still see that now. The Nike example, you could probably cut and paste that into the Apple example from a couple of years ago where they completely failed to put anything about women's health in their health app because it was designed by a bunch of men. And I thought that was really funny. Those problems continue to exist. And Dan from way back then was one of the people who understood that from very early on about the internet giving you creative ways to solve problems. It was a great little anecdote. What about you? When he was talking about that Nike early Fitbit, it really, really struck me that a lot of these products that are made by these brands have become such an intrinsic part of our life. And we give over so much data to them and they basically support us in a lot of the goals we want to reach. And that in these debacles where you totally forget about women or you accidentally tell someone that their baby's too fat, you really break the trust in between the brand and the person using the product. And it just shows how you've just got to try and get that diversity when you're building those products, which is something we really strive to do in the public sector. 
The other thing that I liked about his time at Wyden was when I asked him about what he saw in the private sector that was an anti-pattern. And he came up with siloizations, the people who would basically be best placed to have a good and strong product solution for the business problems were not empowered to actually make that so because they were in different departments or people just saw digital as a bolt on to their normal day job. It really shows that that is a trending problem throughout all big organizations. And it's one that is really hard to break. How not surprised were you to hear a shout out to Martha Lane Fox? Not surprised at all. I basically think we should start a drinking game where we take a shot every time Martha's name comes up. It's so great to hear that the work that she did at GDS quite a long time ago now has had such a big influence on international projects. What do you think about his time at Code for America? A lot of the stuff that Code for America have done around things like food stamps and people who are really vulnerable and underrepresented has been in the state of California, as they seem to be taking a bit more of a proactive and liberal approach to those kinds of social challenges. When we asked him, what's it like to have the difference between a huge homeless population and people in extreme poverty? And on the other side of the bay, you've got all of the people in Silicon Valley. That disparity must be huge. He was saying how California is the richest state. There's the real perception that all the techies in Silicon Valley are just these money-grabbing, no-principled people. But in his experience, there were plenty of techies who did have humanist principles. And that was really heartening to hear. It's probably something you and I and quite a few others in our circles would have guessed because we work with lots of people in government who have come from technology in the private sector. It was nice to see that really stark contrast of people who were Silicon Valley folks being able to transition and really be in support of some of the more mission-centered and human problems. Yeah, definitely. And I loved when he talked about the SNAP program, about food assistance to people who are hungry or people who are low income. When you try and sign up for that, the process for it is just so convoluted that often people don't even know that they're eligible using some of the principles that are common in Silicon Valley to make it as easy to sign up for the SNAP program or at least know you're eligible as it is to sign up for some of the normal apps we use in day-to-day life like Uber. What I thought was really interesting that he touched on there was the empathy gap. And I know that that's something that you've had a lot of thoughts on. The empathy gap was a phrase that really resonated with me. I don't know if I'd describe it as a gap more so than It doesn't even enter people's consciousness sometimes that there are some people with completely different experiences to them. Dan certainly came across as a very empathetic person. And as one of the co-founding members of Civic Tech in the States, it's a principle that we really hold dear and want to make sure that people understand and encourages people to work in the public sector. I really enjoyed that. What about some of his big slash slightly crazy ideas? Yeah, I love talking about those. He has some really, really big ideas that he is really open with. What did you reckon to his really open, honest sections where he was talking about mental health? Wow, that was really, really incredible. Obviously, we've done a bunch of research and read a lot of the articles that he's published online about mental health, the demands of masculinity. But I don't think I was necessarily expecting him to be so open on the podcast about it. And especially that bit at the end where he recommended that charity that support outpatient care. 
it was just really, really nice to hear someone be so honest and so frank about something that is really prevalent in our sector, which is stress and problems with mental health. At the end, I just remember thanking him for being so honest. I would definitely thank him again for that. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely one of the most interesting and varied interviews that we've had so far. And I can only hope that we get to go hang out with Code for America sometime. Definitely. And I feel like he's got even more stories in him. So maybe we'll have to do a part two next year. (laughs) And that's it from the One Team Gov show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.